should um, not make the title just um, uh, per, um, perfunctory. Um, and since we're talking about titles, uh, so how are we? How many people is this your first reading turn of the screw? Um, are you finding it hard, easy compared to poetry? Harder, easier? Sick. Thick. Thick. Yeah. Okay. Um, is that good or bad? Took like hours to read twenty pages, and then hours. <laughs> yeah, but would it wouldn't it take hours to read twenty pages of poetry? Well, yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to read poetry like that because we'll do it in class, right? <laughs> it's just like you know, words, whatever they rhyme, kind of, and there's a feeling. But there's a story here. Um, what did other people think? Other first timers. You read it before, right? There are a couple of people who've read it before. Who else read it before? Okay, so other first. Are you a first timer? Yeah. Just some getting used to, to like to kind of get into how he built the sentences because it's very different. But after I kind of got used to it, I could read it. Uh huh. Did 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 you feel like you were getting into a sort of rhythm of reading? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that James is really good at doing that. It it takes a while to get the rhythm, but it's the first thing the governess says. Do you remember her first sentence? To me, what ups and downs. Yeah, nice. Um, it's I remember it all. Well, I won't. I, I don't remember it all. Um, I remember the whole beginning. It's yes. a succession of flights and drops. A little seesaw, right? Throbs in the wrong. Yeah. So there, that's a I think a pretty decent description of um, James's own style here. That is flights and drops, a little seesaw of the right throbs in the wrong. Okay. Um, is it your first reading? So what are you thinking? Uh huh. So, and was that good or bad? How did you feel about? How did you feel about that? Share. Okay. So when you when um, when we come to um, no, give us a better title. Okay. That's what he just did. Sorry. That's what he said. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 sorry, I was responding to it. Um, yeah, um, when we see things as we're reading it, um, just if you think something is particularly, or anyone, if you think something is particularly awkward um, or particularly well done, say so. Um, do you have something in mind for awkward? Okay. Um, and people got about a quarter of the way through? Um, okay. Um, yeah, Maya. Um, I just think that his writing puts like emotion over plot. Uh -huh. So you get that they're afraid before you see any reason for them to be afraid. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, okay, you're really scared. I don't understand why. Uh huh. Like, I'm going to go back and read your. I still don't <laughs> By you, you why. mean you. Hmm? By you, you mean you? Me? No. No, who's really scared? The, the governess. governess. She's just really terrified all the time, and you're just like, this guy, <laughs> this guy in the tower, he's a normal-looking guy, not dead. <laughs> okay. The well, what I liked about that was that he acknowledged that in the beginning when all of these guests, when he's the, the man recounting the story, is kind of like, well, no, it's too terrible, I can't tell you. And they're kind of, you know, at first, what, what is it? And then they, they start leaving. They start being like, all right, well, let's, I've, I've had it with him being like, 
well, it started on a, you know, kicking the log in the fire and being like, no, no, I can't, I can't talk about it. And then, so he, he comments on, like, and the rest of them began to grow weary of it. So he acknowledges, I think, the fact that bringing out the fear before the reason for it is, to most people, seems silly. Um, okay, it's uh, most, uh, we don't know that it's most people, but there's certainly a distinction that's being made um, in, the fr in what's called the frame. Um, why is it called a frame? What's the, what? What is the tenor of that vehicle? Frame narrative. What am I talking about when I talk about a frame narrative, Maya? It's where there's like somebody playing the story, and most of the book is the story. Mm -hmm. Or like, um, I don't know, a letter introducing, like, I found this. Like Franklin's. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So here's here's a, here's what I found on my desk. Um, after after the seniors moved out last year, um, and whoa, I had no idea what was going on here last year. But anyhow, you shall judge, dear reader. Um, yeah. F so frame narratives are basically a narrative where the narrator is explicitly, um, and from the first, the narrator of the main story is explicitly, and from the first, not um, not the author. Um, often the author will, sometimes under his or her own name, present themselves as editors. That is, um, Rousseau very famously begins his novel Julie um, as uh, um, he begins by saying, um, "I saw the moors of my, I, I found these letters, and seeing the moors of my time, the mores of my time, I published them." Um, and um, the idea, so there used to be a lot of what are called epistolatory novels, novels written in the form of letters between characters. Um, there are text novels like that now, too. There are um, not many, and there won't be many, but there's some. It's a good gimmick. But back when you had more than 140 characters, you would sometimes have 10 or 12-page novels. There, are, there was also an email novel a few years ago. Um, and there's also two live journal novels, just to show how, how old-fashioned all this stuff is. Thank God, not um, a Facebook novel. Well, no, there, there is a book called 420 Characters, um, but it's, it's kind of a book of prose poetry. It's status updates. I believe they're exactly 420 characters long, which is the Facebook limit. And I think this person, the gimmick was that they're beautiful, they're poetic, they're dreamy, and they're all exactly 420 characters um, long. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's all sorts of stuff. But a frame narrative is one where, um, if you guys have read Frankenstein, that's a good example of that, where Robert Walton um, begins with a letter to his sister in which he says, uh, oh, I'm trying to find this Northwest Passage because it would be really good for humanity if I find it, and we're sailing, we're sailing it. Yesterday, we found the strangest man on the ice. Um, and he was really sick and miserable, but he promised tomorrow he'd tell me his story. And then the next day, that man who is Victor Frankenstein tells his story. Um, and that story goes on at some length. And then eventually, um, at the other side of the frame, uh, well, I don't want to give you a spoiler. Um, how many people haven't read Frankenstein? Okay, well, um, the story is kind of interesting because there's a weird character who comes in pretty soon. Um, kind of a monstrous, I, I shouldn't say anymore. Um, so, um, the frame here is what? 
you were saying. But just just be explicit. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. So, uh, what season is it? Winter. Winter. It's yeah. It's Christmas season. Um, and who's telling the story? What's his name? What is it? Douglas. Douglas yeah. Um, so a guy named Douglas is telling a story. Um, who's he telling it to? A bunch of dummies. <laughs> <laughs> Why dummies? Uh, they just they just sound like. Of frivolous idiots, the way, he, the way he describes their their discussion, including the narrator. I didn't know it's he, the narrator, in the first part. Good point. I assumed. How many people assume the narrator's male? Um, how many? And did you, did you not, or was this just I a quick? I assumed it was female. You assumed the narrator's female. Yeah, Why? Because she talks awfully fondly about Douglas, which couldn't didn't doesn't necessarily preclude it being male, but. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the narrator certainly does speak very fondly about Douglas. Um, can you give an example? Um, give me a minute. Um, how many else thought the narrator was female? Um, and how many thought the narrator was ambiguous, that we don't know the gender of the narrator? That explicitly occurred to you to wonder, and that occurred to you to wonder? Um, okay, yeah, so for I think most people see the narrator as male. Um, very few will simply think the narrator is female. Um, uh, no, I think I think we have a fair representation of of uh, what 300 million Americans would do reading this novel. Um, well, maybe we don't. Um, as far as assuming what the narrator is, um, that is, <coughs> a very few will think the narrator is female. Um, a few, uh, probably twice as many will um, decide that it's too ambiguous to tell, and most people will assume the narrator is male. Um, what's the evidence that the narrator's male? Uh, the, so the evidence of the narrator's female, which is not decisive, but is um, at least somewhat present, especially in 1898, um, is an apparent uh, crush. Um, if that, I mean, crush is probably too strong a word for what we have explicit evidence for. Um, but the narrator certainly thinks that Douglas thinks the narrator is special compared to all the other dummies um, who are there um, for the telling of the story, for the reading out of the story. Yeah. He refers to the ladies, not the other ladies. Okay, so that's good evidence that um, the narrator's male. Um, Something. I'm, I mean, I don't know if it's real evidence. All right, it's evidence. Let's not say it's good evidence. It's evidence. Um, a distinction between evidence and good evidence is an important one. Um, and evidence is something that um, can at least be argued as um, something to think about when, you, when you're making an argument. Um, so good evidence is, is very hard to refute. Evidence is, yeah, I guess I do have to take this into account, although maybe I can refute it. Um, Isabel, were you going to say something? The same thing. So it's, it's the way the ladies respond versus the way um, it sounds like the kind of gentleman who might then withdraw, um, um, might, might, might smoke around the table after the ladies withdraw. Okay, I, I actually couldn't find, I, I think I guess it was sort of more like a tone, but there was one line that sort of 
was, I guess, kind of an intimation, which was, Poor Douglas, before his death, when it was in sight, committed to me the manuscript that reached him on the third of these days, and that, on the same spot, with immense effect, he began to read to our hushed little circle on the night of the fourth. The departing ladies who said they would stay didn't, of course, thank heaven, stay. They departed in consequence of arrangements made. The sort of, like, relief that Ovo, which I guess I read as, like, oh, the other ladies are going good. They're mm -hmm. stupid, and they don't get Douglas like I get him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And um, so you're seeing it as the other ladies. Um, I am, but that's that's. I think it could be. Yeah. I think that if if the narrator sees the ladies slash other ladies as like stupid and like all like all stupid, mm -hmm. then even if she's a woman, it would be appropriate to call them the ladies because they're like at the like, and they're all like all together the ladies. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's how I sort of saw it. Yeah. Um, and that's a way for her to separate herself from them. That is well, the ladies. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's partly a question of tone. Yeah. Part of my argument of why I think they're fools, if you look at the very end of this like intro part, she goes, he or she says, What's your title? I haven't one. Oh I have, I said. Mm -hmm. But Douglas, without heeding me, had begun to read. He's kinda like, Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what you think. Yeah. Um on the other hand, um, what is the title of the book? And who do you think gave it that title? Um, what's your evidence for that? They, they say it in like very early on, don't they? They say the, the phrase, yeah. yeah. What's that called when the phrase of the book is in it? Is, in it? is there a term for that? Or am I making that like, up? sort of like increasing the tension, like increasing the... No, but I mean like specifically like, you know, when in Great Expectations, I, say, I have Great Expectations. Yeah, no, no, it's, I don't know that there's a term for it because I once tried to find out oh. because I actually once um, <coughs> wrote several pages on um, title um, moments when the title, um, when, you, when you come upon the title when you're reading something. Um, and that's always a little bit of a thrill. Um, where have we seen it last in this class? Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's no, in the intimations, though, there's no point. The, the word, um, there's no point where we get, um, but for those first um, reflections, those shadowy recollections, those intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood, um, that's a purely descriptive title. Um, and it's telling you what to look for. Um, but a title which comes out as a kind of quotation from the thing that it titles, or maybe we should put it the other way, that the, um, the work quotes its title at some point. It brings you to a kind of really interesting um, idea of framing again. That is, the title is a frame. Um, and often, you know, if you... If if you read a book called, you know, Memoir Found in a Bottle, and then there's nothing about a bottle in it, um, it's the title that, that's simply giving you the frame. Um, um, you know, Recollections of a Madman. It's the title that gives you the frame. So the interaction of title and work can be an interesting one, especially when the title is quoted in the work. Um, when the title is quoted in the work, then, you, then you're making a connection. It's like there's a loop back to the beginning from that moment. So that loop occurs very early, right? 
Um, that is um, Douglas in his first speech, second paragraph. I quite agree, he says, in regard to Griffin's ghost or whatever it was, that it's appearing first to the little boy. It's a tender in age, adds a particular touch. But it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved a child. If the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? So that's where we get um, the title right there. And um, somebody says, we say, of course, that they give two turns, also that we want to hear about them. Um, so that's the title looping to the beginning. Um, and so the first thing we can ask is, how are, what are you taking the phrase to mean, turn of the screw? A heightening of the tension. A heightening of the tension. Why? What's the metaphor? of which that would be the, what is the vehicle of which that would be the tenor? I just had the image of a thin piece of wood held by a screw and someone just tightening it and tightening it as the wood is cracking. Okay. Um, do other, was that the image other people had? I had the image of something being constructed. Mm-hmm. So it's not, <laughs> look at your t-shirt. So it's not, um, <laughs> So it's not a, um, a tightening, but a putting another piece in. Yeah. Um, although one turn of the screw won't quite do it, um, but maybe it's, it's well, solidifying it. going towards the completion. Of yeah, OK. So it's, it's just purely another step taken in the direction of completion, rather than a particular step which would merge with what Ben is saying, which right. is tightening um, a part of it. Um, OK. Uh, partly I ask this because um, when you finish the novel, did anyone finish it? You could put it down, huh? Um, when you finish it, um, the phrase will come back. And then you'll have an interesting question to ask yourself, which is, does the title come from this moment, right near where we're seeing the title, or does it come from the moment almost at the very end um, where someone else uses the phrase? Uh, well, this isn't a terrible spoiler, where the governess uses the phrase. Um, the fact that they both use the phrase also allows for um, a further moment of interpretation. This would be on a second reading, obviously. Um, but I'm, I'll just tell you this. Um, if the phrase appears twice, that is, appears Douglas uses it in the second paragraph, and the governess uses it um, a few pages from the end. Um, what is the, what what kind of thing could you say? What would that suggest to you? Yeah, there's a certain amount of editorialness going in from this narrator. Perhaps um, I mean he's the one. Presumably he's the one writing this. This is written word that's being written by this narrator. At the start, yeah. In reflection backwards. Right. Perhaps he alters the conversation or alters the later text to reflect one to reflect the other. Okay. After having read after having read the story. Okay, so it could be that the um, frame narrator is um, is tweaking the narrative being presented to us, Maya. Um, or that. Like, Douglas knows this story, and he was in love with the governess, so he could adopt her language. Mm -hmm. It's like, the, the turn of the screw is a really odd phrase. And mm -hmm. I usually see that twice in one book. 
Yeah, that's right. And it is a really odd phrase. It's not a phrase that has actually appeared before this book. Um, now, we, now it's become semi-idiomatic in English. In English, um, that is, people we, we talk about it as a, twi a plot twist. Will will sometimes be called another turn of the screw. Um, that was um, that phrase, which sounds semi-idiomatic, even if we're trying to figure out wh where the idiom, idiom comes from. Um, is actually invented by James. So um, it really does stand out um, when, when you think of it that way. Um, yeah, of course he's read the narrative. He reads it out loud, but he's read it before. He's talked to the governess, and he says it's deep in his heart. Um, that is that he knows the story, um, and he strikes his breast at one moment, and he says, it's, I have it here. But then he goes and sends for the manuscript um, and reads it in his um, uh, clear voice, and they listen to it. Um, then Douglas dies um, at some point. Let's, let's, let's ask it this way. Um, let's say that this narrative is being published in 1898 which is when the book is published. So let's say that um, fictional time and real time get tacked together at the moment of publication, um, much in the same way that when Watson publishes um, a Sherlock Holmes story, um, it's always published in the year um, that Watson says it is um, 1874, and it's published in 1874. Um, and Watson tells stories of what's happened before, frequently stuff that's happened within the last year, sometimes in the early story stuff that happened a long time ago. Um, but the year of publication and the fictional year tend to be the same. Um, that's not always true. Um, historical novelists uh, do something different all the time. But generally, your publication and fictional year tend to be the same if it's an issue. So let's say that the moment that the narrator publishes this book is 1898. When do the events take place? And what do I mean by events? Well, what do I mean by events? What different time frames are there in the book? Yeah. I mean, Douglas is telling the story. Mm -hmm. but How long ago is that? Yeah, but how long before 1898? Let's go. Let's work backwards. I don't know. The narrator never really says in the beginning. I remember 12 years ago when I went to Douglas's house right. for Christmas. Right. So, yeah. So he doesn't give an exact time, but what? What is the major event that has occurred between the reading, between this Christmas Eve and the time of publication? Douglas has died. Douglas has died. Um, and the narrator calls him poor Douglas. Um, he talks about what poor Douglas did before his death. Um, why do you think he calls him poor Douglas? Or what does that do to your sense of time? Um, I'm just looking for where he does that. If someone finds it, uh, tell me. Um, yeah, there it is. It's 
No, I lost it. It's the paragraph begins, I knew the next day the letter containing the key had by the first post gone off to his London apartments. Um, but in spite of, or perhaps just on account of, the eventual diffusion of this knowledge, we quite left him alone till after dinner. If you have a different version, by the way, um, let me know. James revised this just stylistically. And so there will be places where there are, there are verbal differences, and I'm always curious about those. Um, Wait, where are we? The paragraph began, begins, I knew the next day that a letter containing the key has... If you found it, tell. Yeah, but a lot of you have the the very cheap version that I ordered. <laughs> so I knew the next day that a letter containing the key had, by the first post, gone off to his London apartments. But in spite of, or perhaps just on account of, the eventual diffusion of this knowledge, we quite let him alone till after dinner. Um, what does that mean? In spite of, or perhaps just on account of. Explain that phrase. Yeah. Um, they, like, in spite of would be that it's, like, I mean, on account of is that he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the story and it's coming, so bugging him doesn't really help. Okay. Um... So they know that it's coming. And so because they know it's coming, for whatever reason, they don't bug him about it. Um, I don't quite agree with you with, with why they don't bug him. Um, I think that it's rather um, everyone knows that he sent for it, so there's no reason to ask him, which is almost what you're saying, but not quite. Um, why in spite of? Then. Yeah, I think the implication is that they they would want to, and that there's something holding them back. And I think what I read that as is they're scared. Okay, um, could be, um, but just uh, uh, Marielle, what were you gonna say? Um, I was gonna say the in spite of it makes me almost think that they're leaving him alone. Um, like in spite of the fact that even though like they know what's coming, they're excited and they want to just like maybe like. Just you, he'll tell them like a little bit just before it comes. Mm -hmm. But in, in like, in spite of the fact that they know it's coming, oh, we still want to know. Okay, so it's a it's a pretty neat phrase and something that it's it's not in any in in any way unique to James, but it's pretty it's a pretty neat moment when um, a piece of when when something when when um, you're making a connection for why something is happening, you're giving a cause for the reason that something is happening. Um, and uh, the two possibilities are directly diametrically opposed to each other. Um, um, in spite of the fact that the party was coming to an end, um, she was happy. Or maybe it was because of the fact that the party was coming to an end that she was happy. And um, essentially that tells you that there's some relation of her happiness to the fact that the party is coming to an end. Um, but you're not sure whether it's, it was a good party and all things must pass, but even so, she was, it was such a good party that she was still happy, or it was a bad party and she was happy, therefore, because it was finally coming to an end. Um, do you guys know where the phrase, this too shall pass, comes from? It's not the Bible. A lot of people think it's the Bible. It's not. Yeah. Isn't it like this uh, for 
Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he sends out um, his three wise men uh, to go search for it. They search for years and years. Um, and eventually they come back uh, to the king and kneel before him. And they report back that they found the, the phrase or the, the advice, the wisdom that will, will be able to do exactly what he asked for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way that I heard it, there's a lot of they go back and they bring back him like this huge stack of like a thousand pages, which is all this wisdom, and they just keep condensing it until it's that phrase. Yeah, this too shall pass. Notice by the way that we conform to the story, which is the king sends someone out on a task to find hmm. the phrase. Um, that's what we were talking about with Child Roland. Um, okay, good. So this too shall pass. Um, that's that's a good version of um, in spite of or rather because or perhaps because of um, that is that it's uh, the party is going to end either way um, and whether it's this too shall pass as a warning or this too shall pass as a comfort is what we just don't know um, the party um, as the party came to an end she shook her head. Or as the party was going on, she shook her head and said, this too shall pass. And half the people there thought she was saying, God, I hate this party. And half the people there thought she's having a good time, but she knows it's not going to last. Um, so it's, it's, um, so in spite of the fact that the party was good, she said, this too shall pass. Um, that means she was sorry it wasn't going to last. Or um, on account of the fact that the that, or in spite of the fact that the party was going on, she said this too shall pass. Or on account of the fact that the party was going on, she said this too shall pass. Um, that's the in spite of or because of moment. Hang on to it because it's, because it's something that you will find a lot in James. Moments where you have to decide whether something has happened in spite of or because of. So, in spite of, or perhaps just on account of, the eventual diffusion of this knowledge, we quite let him alone till after dinner, till such an hour of the evening, in fact, as might best accord with the kind of emotion on which our hopes were fixed. Then he became as communicative as we could desire, and indeed gave us his best reason for being so. We had got it from him again before the fire in the hall, as, as we had had our mild wonders of the previous night. It appeared that the narrative he had promised to read us really required for proper intelligence a few words of prologue. Let me say here distinctly to have done with it that this narrative, from an exact transcript of my own made much later, is what I shall presently give. Poor Douglas, before his death, when it was in sight, committed to me the manuscript that reached him on the third of these days, and that on the same spot, with immense effect, he began to read to our hushed little circle on the night of the fourth. So on the fourth night, to immense effect, the little circle that remains was hushed and, um, and captivated by the narrative. Um, the departing ladies who had said they, they would stay didn't, of course, thank heaven, stay. They departed because they're departing ladies. In, consequences, in consequence of arrangements made, and a rage of curiosity as they professed, produced by the touches with which he had already worked us up, but that only made his little final auditory more compact and select, kept it round the hearth subject to a common thrill. Yeah? I want to say about the time. The, well, the frame there. Yeah. Is that something interesting about this frame is that the beginning and the end of the frame are in the beginning. There is no end. Right. There's, there, notably, there's no end to the frame. In the yeah. Story. 
when yeah. the story when the tech when the written text ends, the story is over. Right. And so, he, he kind of compresses both into the beginning because he doesn't he want he doesn't want to right say anything to, to to dilute it at the end. Right. You may partly expect that there'll be a frame at the end after this. That is, after Douglas read the story, we all looked at each other and someone said, But what does it all mean? And Douglas said, Well, it means just what it means. Looking at me, I fancied with a certain um, sense that I would understand him. Yes, I agree with my title, I said. And <laughs> Douglas said, Well, you must give it a title. And so I have. Um, we don't get that. Um, and good. Sorry? That's probably good. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. But what this is is an introduction. That is, you know, when you get, um, does your, your version has an introduction, but it doesn't also have an afterword. Um, generally, books give you introductions or afterwards, but not both. Um, there's something a little bit um, overdone about someone who says, well, now I'm going to introduce you to Tolstoy's Death of Ivan Ilyich, and I'm going to tell you the really the things you need to know. And then when you're done with it, I shall have some more words to say, because, you know, Tolstoy's ending was good, but I will simply want to bring out some things that Tolstoy didn't quite. Um, so introductions are, there's a sense in which what an introduction is, is a gesture of deferral um, and deference to the main work. Um, and then the work should stand for itself. A good introduction allows a work to stand for itself. And that's sort of what he's doing. So you're right, it's a frame, but we don't need um, the, the other half of the frame. We just need something to hang the story from. So maybe we could call it a hanger narrative instead of a frame narrative. Um, and by hanging the story from it, we, we know what we need to know. Here's what Douglas did. It was important to him. He read it. We, we were all hushed. And years later, so what's the last thing that happens? The last event that we know of from the story is what? The last action that anyone takes that we know from the story that gets narrated is what? No, there's an action afterwards. Um, the publication of the manuscript. Yeah, but that's he doesn't say he's publishing it. Yeah. But that's before his death. So there's one other thing that happens presumably after Douglas dies. Comes out as a noun. Well, actually, there's a verb, too. Um, uh, okay, I shall presently give. That's great. Okay, yeah, here it is. Um, the second to last, then, the penultimate, as we say. Everyone knows penultimate means second to last. Never talk about something as, I had the penultimate experience, especially in a job interview. Don't do that. <laughs> Unless the person interviewing you says, so what is the penultimate experience that you've ever had? And you can say, <laughs> you can say, taking the elevator up to your office. Um, what could be better, really? Your office, the elevator, it was completely the penultimate. Um, pen and pen penultimate is like pen and peninsula. No, it, it, that, it means almost, um, next to. Um, a peninsula is almost an island. Everyone knows that? Um, yeah. Well, now you know. I'm from Florida, so it's good knowledge. <laughs> um, so what's penultimate is almost the last, almost the ultimate. Um, so an exact transcript of my own made much later. 
So possibly the transcript is made before Douglas dies, but it seems pretty clear that the sequence of events is Douglas is dying, his death is in sight, he gives the manuscript to the narrator, um, Douglas then does die, and the narrator makes a transcript of the narrative, um, and what we have here is um, from that transcript. So the narrator is keeping the manuscript, um, isn't giving the manuscript, let's say, to the publisher. Uh, in the same way that Douglas kept the, the manuscript all those years, the narrator's keeping the manuscript, but where Douglas read it out loud, reproduced it through his voice, um, the narrator wrote it down from the manuscript. It's not one of those, and here's what Douglas said for four years, and now many years later I'm going to write it down word for word. Um, he says, no, it's, I actually have the manuscript and I'm copying it word for word. Um, so the sequence of events then is Douglas, so far what we have is Christmas Eve, people telling stories, Douglas sends for a story, and four days later, so it's um, um, almost New Year's, Douglas reads the story to us around the fire. Then what happens much later, or somewhat later? Douglas dies. Douglas dies. Um, poor Douglas, then, in that phrase, um, is, look, look what happened to him. He died. Um, and it also has the suggestion, which I'm not sure you guys can feel, but it, it's um, a little bit of a standard turn of phrase in the 19th century. It also has the suggestion that I am now telling a story about a time when Douglas was alive, but my sense of Douglas is that he was poor Douglas because I knew what was going to happen to him. I now know thinking back on that time, I now know what was going to happen to him. That is, that he would get sick and die. Um, and so when I think back on that time, I think of him as the mortal creature, um, even if he was to me entirely beautiful. Um, I think of him as the person whose mortality is now, how, is how I think of him now. Now he's dead. And the way you could say the past tense of the adjective dead is poor. Adjectives don't have past tenses, obviously, although participles do, and they're adjectival. But that would be a metaphorical way of, of saying it, that, that if someone is dead, then what you say about them in the past is something like you think of them as poor, the person, poor X who will be dead. Um, poor X, then dead now. Yeah. Even in just the short introduction, there's this strong sense of like inheritance. Mm -hmm. The story, the story is, is passed yeah. down. Right. Good. From the governess, you know, it's the thing that happened to the governess. From the governess to Douglas, it killed the governess. Now it killed Douglas. Presumably, it's going to kill the narrator, <laughs> and now it's yours, and it's going to kill you. It's, it's, so like, it's like the ring. It is. You know what? Yeah, I like that actually. Yeah. <laughs> it is like the ring. It's like a book ring. Well, but how old is Douglas? So here, 40 years after, he's at least 60. Yeah, because it, this was 40 years earlier, and where, what, how old is he 40 years earlier? Well, if he's at least 60, uh, six, zero minus zero is zero, six minus four. I was just assuming. <laughs> where is he when he meets the governess? 
where has he been? Whose governess is she when he meets her? Yeah, um, and where where is he when he meets her? He's been in college. He's been in school, and he comes home for the vacation. All right, and that's where he meets her. So he's when he meets her, he's you guys' age. He's our age. <laughs> uh, every year, the laughter gets more <laughs> ill disguised. <laughs> Um, when I first taught here, I had students who were older than I was, undergrads older than I was. Um, wow. Now they're fewer in every class. <laughs> really? Okay. Um, so, um, it's 40 years earlier, we know that, um, when he was an undergraduate and met the governess when he was on vacation. How old was she then? 10 years older than him. Yeah, so she was about 30. Um, how old is she when the turn of the screw, the main narrative, actually takes place? She must be like... She's like eight, 17, 18. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's been between the Christmas Eve that this takes place and the events that are recounted, there's been 10 or 12 years before the governess turns 30, before she becomes 10 years older than... Douglas, and then another 40 years. So it's something like 50 years, let's say roughly speaking 50 years later on that Christmas Eve. But that Christmas Eve, still what happens between that Christmas Eve and now is that poor Douglas dies. But he's, his death, he dies um, sometime when his end is in sight. So his end isn't in sight then. He's 60, um, and he will die in the next five or ten years, we can guess. It's not going to be the narrators and saying, and this is the story that Douglas confided to us a year before he died, how spooky. It's um, Douglas told, um, told us his story, and then um, when his end was in sight, he gave me the transcript. So his end wasn't in sight yet. Um, so I think, let's say, five or ten years is reasonable. So that makes it, fifty. let's say, 55 years. And then much later, I made a transcript of this. So what's much later? Ten years later. Yeah, it's not going to be, um, and much later, that was January and I waited till March. Um, it's got to be several years later. Um, ten years later seems like a reasonable number for much. Do people agree? So we're talking something like 60 years ago. So these are events that are happening um, in the 1830s, let's say. Um, published in 1898, but happening somewhere in the late 1830s or even early 1830s. So it's a long time ago. Um, and that layering of times um, gives you a sense, um, a really interesting sense of, a, of an interaction of both immediacy and remoteness. What about the fact that Douglas does give the narrator the manuscript? What does that say about um, how much of a dummy Douglas thinks the narrator is? Maya? Not as much as everybody else. Not as much as everybody, as everybody else. Uh, when the narrator says, he seemed to look at me, he says, you'll understand, you will. Um, and looked at me um, 
I'm going to try to find that part. Um, Sorry? You'll easily judge. You will, yeah. Um, so there, does that make the narrator special? What, um, how does that paragraph begin? Yeah, yeah, okay, right. Um, yeah, you'll easily judge, he repeated. You will. He continued to fix me. You'll easily judge, he repeated. You will. Um, what's the difference between the you, the unitalicized you, and the italicized one? Yeah, if Mitt Romney were pandering for votes, he would say something like, strange things are happening to me. You all will easily judge, and then you will. Um, yeah, it's, it, I think you're right, that you'll easily judge is plural, and then you will is singular. Um, but that's assuming that the narrator can tell what words Douglas is italicizing. Um, now, generally, italics means emphasis. So we feel that um, when you have italics in dialogue, that's just telling you how the dialogue should be read. Um, that is, you'll easily judge. You will. Um, but it's also the case that um, the emphasis may be imported into something that isn't quite there. Uh, we have to. We. How much do you trust the narrator's sense given by this italics that Douglas is calling the narrator special, is particularly interested in um, uh, telling the narrator that he or she is, is pretty swell. Yeah. Something like the ancient mariner taking the, the one bride nice. uh, wedding guest by the hand. Yeah, so you're the important one. Um, but he doesn't take him by the hand. He just says, you'll easily judge. Um, who is saying the things um, that Douglas is responding to? Um, so I, I abjured him to write by the first post. Um, this is a couple of paragraphs earlier. I adjured him to write by the first post and to agree with us for an early hearing. Then I asked him if the experience in question had been his own. To this, his answer was prompt. Oh, thank God, no. Um, so what does that tell you for sure? That uh, What does it tell you for sure about what Douglas's first name is not? doesn't actually tell you for sure, but. Okay, it's not Henry, good. Uh, what or Miles. Or Miles. Yeah, some people um, want to try to make the argument that Douglas is Miles, and you can only make that argument if he's lying. Um, and if, um, as you'll see also, if the story doesn't um, tell the truth at the end. Um, so I don't think it's, I don't think that, I think James is preventing that argument from the start. Um, Gillen, was your hand, uh, sorry, I thought your hand was up. Okay, um, so, and is the record yours? You took the thing down? Is that the narrator asking that question? And then, then your manuscript, and because the thing had been such a scare, um, but he continued to fix me. A lot of questions come up and we don't know who's asking them. Um, okay. 
we're basically done with the frame. Uh, we'll talk about the story itself. The real question, just as you continue to read it, we're spending this week and next week on it. The real question as you continue to read it is, um, are the ghosts real or not? That is the question about Turn of the Screw. Um, I think there's an answer, but that is the question. So think about it. <laughs>